This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Ah yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director, and I'm hosting this episode. We've got two great guests on the podcast this week. Later on, Adam talks to Katie Davison, also known as the Oyster Lady, and that's because she's an expert. She'll be debunking a few myths about oysters. But first, I got to catch up with James Wetlow, who's written a fascinating new book about goat and why we should all be eating more of it. Not just because it's delicious, but because of ethical and sustainable reasons too. So I'm here today with um, James Wetlow, who's the author of a new book, Goat, Cooking and Eating, and also the owner of the Cabrito Goat Company, which is a company that is selling goat meat into um, restaurants, into butchers and to the public via the the website. Um, It's a bit of a strange one, goat meat, isn't it? Because it's not something that... Oh, sorry. Welcome, James, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. um, But it's a bit of a strange one, the goat meat industry, because it's not something that in the past has been very popular with the British public. Yeah, which marks us out globally. Because we are one of the few countries that doesn't eat goat meat. Um, and I think it's really interesting as to why we don't. We, um, When we first started out, there wasn't anybody really doing, no. doing goat meat on any sort of scale, which meant that there was all these billy goats in the dairy industry mm-hmm. that had no home. So it was kind of a fixing the problem in the dairy industry also yeah. meant that we had to kind of fix a problem in the 
food in the sort of in the in the British diet in a way. That's yeah. not a problem, but it's a there is a hole in the British diet which should contain goat meat, and there's a problem in the dairy industry because yeah. of all the dillies. <laughs> so you can bring the two together. Yeah. So, so just to be quite brutal about it, because we might as well get it out of the way now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. What happens in the British dairy goat dairy industry is billy goats are just killed at birth. Yeah, there's a hundred thousand commercial milking nannies in the UK. Yeah. Um, which leads to fifty thousand billy goats because nature decrees they usually have two yep. when they're the pregnant nannies usually have two kids nature will decree a 50 50 split yep. so there'll be about fifty thousand billy goats born every year on farms that nobody has any use for yep. until we came along that yeah. is um it the, the number is actually a little bit higher than that because not all the goats not all the goat dairies will keep all the females every year in order to replenish their stock okay so i mean nobody really knows because nobody keeps any detailed records of animals that they don't keep alive but we estimate about 70,000. That's where it was when we first started. Wow. Um, and from a really, I mean, that's the motivation for starting. Yeah. From a, the, from a really fundamental level, I couldn't work out how an animal's life had no value. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, we talk about these animals as if the term that we use is byproduct. Yeah. That's wrong. They're a waste product. Because yeah, they had no use. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of, a byproduct makes it sound a little bit like it's <clears> okay. <throat> They're a byproduct now because they get used. But when we first started, they were a waste product. They were getting euthanized at birth and put into an incinerator. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's a bad idea. But fundamentally, for an animal's life to have no value just seemed really no, wrong. Really to wrong. Me. Yeah. So <clears throat> you can't, so we, we go to the dairies and say, please don't do that. Rear them up for me and we'll sell them. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, the model of it. But that's really hard to do when there's no cultural history of eating goat meat in the UK. Yeah. So, so you had to try and find a place to put... We started a yeah. business with no product and no market. <laughs> <laughs> which it's was a really, massive leap of faith, really isn't it? Really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you had an idea and you had this dream to bring the two things together. Yeah, and is... I think we have a lot... I mean, I worked for I worked for Hugh at the River Cottage. Yeah, I was and... going to say, because you, you've, got, you've got quite a... Um, a huge background. I mean, with some great chefs, like you worked for the Eagle yeah. in Farringdon, you worked 15 for years, at, 15 years of cooking. And, yeah. you know, I grew up in Devon yeah. where I'm by the sea where most of the jobs you have when you're a kid are yeah. in washing up or, and then you go out to chopping onions and then before you know it, you're a, you know, you're a chef. Yeah. And I worked as a, you know, <laughs> frying fish and chips. So I've always been involved in catering in some yeah. way. So I had 15 years, of, when I when I decided what I wanted to do for a living, I came to London and was a chef for, about 15 years all in all wow. so but working with someone like Hugh yeah and seeing the campaigning that he's done kind of planted the seed in our head that actually mm. it would be possible to to change this food system because you see people that make positive change in mm. the food system quite regularly because he was a big campaigner Hugh friendly went install for the, yeah, the no not, waste thing isn't it I mean there was well, a I fish was work, by, I was working you, yeah. for Hugh during the fish campaign yeah and during the and when he released the veg book I was in that tv series yeah. so you kind of it didn't I wasn't daunted by the prospect because a new change like that was possible and also like I said it's such a even now, after six years of doing it, it's just really stupid to knock yeah. these animals on the head and throw them in the bin when you can raise them up and yeah. put them into the food system. But the thing that, and it's not, I think it's really important when you're thinking about it, that mm. it's not, the farmers don't want to euthanize the animals. The, People don't get into farming to kill perfectly no, good animals. No, of course they don't. But, and I talk about this in the book, it's, we're all responsible. I use the phrase on murder, which is the mafia phrase for everybody knows it happens and no one talks about it. <laughs> yeah. you know, the phrase that, that um, Lance Armstrong used about drug taking in the yeah. Tour de France. The farmers don't want to knock the billies on the head, but they're no. not going to tell anyone about it because it's a real threat to their industry. The retailers 
They don't want to tell anyone that the consequence of stacking their no. shelves full of cheese is dead billy goats. And we as consumers, we don't poke too far or lift no. the lid to find out that there are these problems. Yeah. And then when we do get a put goat in front of us, we think, well, I'm not eating that. So everybody's responsible no. for the for the poor, for this particular uh, problem in the food system. I, mean, I think that's why it was really important to talk about it right up front to say this is something that is is going to help the whole system. Yeah. You know, if you start eating goat, you're actually you're, you're then go and eat goat's cheese as yeah. well. You the know, thing it's... about the thing about doing that is that then people try to apportion blame, and I think it's important to say that it's not the farmers' fault. They're not doing no. it because they want to do it. Yeah, and we as a society want these dairy industries to provide us with these products. Mm. We are also responsible on some level for the consequences, which in this case is billy goats. So yeah. what we've tried to do is just rear those billy goats up and create a market for them. And we have had a massive amount of help from the goat dairy industry. because That's great. Because they, they yeah. know that it's a... First of all, the farmers don't want, as I said, they don't want to knock the billies on the head. They'd rather sell them. Yeah. But they can't because they don't have a market. So they have... They have helped us and they have taken the chance and we grew quite slowly, which allowed them to sort of ha- not have a massive amount of risk because when you suddenly have 500 billies on your on your farm, you've essentially doubled your feed bill of your juvenile of animals. Course. So it's a huge investment for them. Yeah. So, And they're not going to do that unless they know they have a market. So the slow growth that we've had has allowed them to be more confident and then keep more animals alive every year. Mm-hmm. You know, And there are still billies being euthanized in the UK. And our job now is to... I mean, Cabrito has a one-line mission statement, all the billy goats into the food system. Yeah. And that won't all be from us because... But my, I see my. But you job, want to be the start of it, like the well, pioneer of my, it. Then. I see my job as as being a marketer, one man yeah. marketing campaign for goat meat. <laughs> You're doing really that, well. <laughs> if that allows other farmers yeah. to find outlets for their billies, and eventually in five, yeah. ten years, all the all the billy goats go into the food system, then great. Cabrito yeah. will have done what it set out to do. And it's a testament to um, to what you're doing, and actually how delicious goat meat is. That you've you've got a lot of chefs backing you, like really good chefs who've all com- yeah. you know contributed to the book. Yeah, because I mean, they- we can talk about the the ethics of the food yeah. system and the ethics of eating goat meat all day long. Yeah, if but, it isn't delicious, yeah. we're not going to get yeah, exactly. Anywhere. So fortunately, it, yeah, is it is really delicious. And the thing about the thing about being <laughs> the thing about being perceived as a crazy guy that drives around London with goats in the back of his van, you know, is that people feel sorry for you. So when you go, so when <laughs> you've you go, already got an automatic so in there. <laughs> when you go and ask them, I'm doing a book, can you give me a recipe? They're yeah. like, yeah, of course we can. Because we've watched, I think it's quite nice for the people. I mean, some of these chefs have become friends. Yeah. You know, and, they've, and they feel a sort of a certain amount of ownership because mm. they've helped us grow. Because um, they've put you on their menu as well, haven't not you? Like, yeah, yeah, me yeah. Well, as well. I mean, I make no good. secret yeah. that we've ridden on the coattails of, yeah. of people like Jeremy Lee and yeah. Yo Tamotalengi yeah. and Neil Rankin and, you know, Mark Hicks and Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Because, and it, when I say it now, it sounds like we had some grand plan, but we didn't. <laughs> it's, I, the only reason that I sold it into restaurants because I'd worked <clears throat> in those restaurants. Yeah. I'd seen that model of sort of producer to back door of restaurant mm. through a through a guy called Tom Jones who supplies the best beef in London and I thought I could mm. just just replicate what he does <laughs> you know and so it was no it was no grand plan but yeah. then the benefit of that is you give it to guys who are paid and it's their living to make it look and taste as yeah. good as possible and then suddenly you have the advent of social media and Instagram and your product looks amazing because yeah. some you've paid someone to someone's paid <laughs> you to stylize it and then someone else is paying to consume it so that and that, what that 
getting into sort of those high-end restaurants, those well-known restaurants. I mean, yeah. we got onto the St. John menu pretty early and we've pretty much stayed there. The the effect that that has in, oh, what's the word? Like visibility? Or? Yeah, well, it's not just visibility. It's almost like... Like, like kudos, it, it, kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it... it it, it rubber stamps it. It says yeah. this is okay to eat because yeah. St. John says it's okay yeah. to eat. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, you need that. It's that stamp of approval yeah. from people, from chefs that people really respect. Like all yeah. the names there, they're not, they're not like celebrity chefs. They're chefs that people follow and they're chefs that people really respect well, used, their opinion. I used to do it. I mean, on my days yeah. off, like pre-smartphones, yeah. I used to get on my bike and ride around London and read yeah. people's menus us because then, and then I get ideas for what for I wanted to what cook you, the following yeah. week. Yeah. So now you're sitting on the bus on the way home and you have a quick Google of yeah, a few of menus and you see Goat pop up mm. and then people say, where do they get it? And you make a few phone calls and you come to me yeah. or you know, one of the other suppliers. And that's kind of, there's a, there's a perpetual motion in that. The more that, the more we do, the more we do, the more menus are on, the more menus are on yeah. because it's visibility. You know? So then, then things like, you know, the odd tea, like Matt Gillen won Great British Menu oh, right, with yeah. our goat. So suddenly, I don't know, a couple of million people are seeing goat on a main course yeah. and that sort of stuff. You know, it feels like we've introduced a new product to the market. Do you think it's hard for them to make the leap, though, from because previously to that, to having your goat, I have to say probably the last time I had it would have been at, like, a Caribbean restaurant yeah. or something, and it would yeah, have yeah, been yeah. The, the quite tough, older, massive chunks of bone totally in it. Kind, product. It's a totally different product, isn't yeah. it? Cause I think that's what I want to get across to people as well. It's... Um, it hasn't got that really high kind of gamey taste that the old goat can have. I think have. the simplest way to describe yeah. it is mutton and lamb. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and kids are the lamb version and yeah. mutton are the older animals. Yeah. Um, the sort of the older ones that you eat in those, I mean, the reason those those stews have those powerful flavours in it yeah. is to stand up to the flavour of, yeah, yeah. of the ingredient. Whereas with the kids, it's much more, it's much more like lamb and they're yeah. a similar size. So kind of a rule of thumb, which I don't like saying, is you... Anything you can do with a lamb, you can do with a goat. Yeah. And uh, sort of the, the next question on from that is, like, why don't I just eat lamb? Yeah. The answer to that is there are a lot of recipes in the British sort of lexicon that would originally have been goat recipes. Okay. But because people have written recipe books, you yeah. can't get hold of lamb in the UK. You can't get hold of goat in the UK. People They've have just used switched lamb. it. Switched like it up. Like tagine. Yeah. How many... How many goat tagines <laughs> do you think you have in Morocco as yeah, opposed to lamb tagines? You're much yeah. more likely to have yeah. a, you know, and that's certainly true of, all, of most of the curry recipes in the book. Yeah. But I think one of the things that, that the book does, I think, is is show you the breadth yeah. of the ingredient yeah, and all of those different influences. Because it's not just a slow cook stew meat exactly. it's you can do everything like exactly. again like you said with lamb you've got your you've got your fillet you've got your roast leg you you can slow cook it i slow cooked it for a recipe for our magazine but you can also make kebabs and flash yeah. cook them well, so, my favorite my favorite recipe of my own in there that yeah. isn't, isn't one of the guest ones is the kibber which is raw oh yeah which is oh. raw chopped which is okay. like the syrian version of a of a steak tartare yeah and the reason i love it is because it's light and fresh and it has that kind of ironiness that you have in a raw meat. Yeah. But I also love it because it's a million miles away from what people think goat it's is, gonna be, which yeah. is tough. And like you said, people have this perception in their <clears> minds <throat> of what goat is, and then that to have to serve it raw with some lemon zest and some mince parsley and mm. pine nuts, then that's a million miles away from where from people's perception of it. What would be the ideal then? Would it be that supermarkets would start picking it up and and using it or getting it on their shelves so people? <sighs> You know, in terms of visibility and... Yeah, and I mean, 
been able to get a hold it of it. Kind of loathes me mm. to say. Yeah. Because, but if you want if the... If you want it to go into the mainstream. If you want to solve the problem, you need the distribution. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And the... So, yes, if it ends up on one of the big four's shelves, then the problem goes away. Yeah. We kill 116,000 lambs a week in the UK. <clears throat> There's wow. only maybe 70,000 billy goats and, well, juvenile goats available. Yeah. So, you know, that's... I don't know, that's five days worth of a week, five day, four days of a week's <laughs> lamb killing wow. for an entire year. And that's a real opportunity for somebody yeah. because that'll only be enough supply for one major multiple retailer. Exactly. So there's an opportunity there for, some, for one of the large retailers to come along and ha just have this British product to yeah. themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it's this, this, and that's why I've always thought that the problem will be solved because when you think about scale, yeah. that isn't a massive <clears throat> leap, you know. I mean, it's we started with four goats in a field to now have a book like five years later yeah. and to be supplying, you know, 80-plus restaurants and to have, the, to have the sort of business that we have now. That feels like we've done the hardest. We take maybe 30% of all the billies born in the UK now. Really? That's, so that seems like... A huge amount. Well, it, and it also feels like the hardest 30%. Yeah. You would have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get it from zero to 30. Exactly, yeah. You well. think it would be easier to get it from 30 to 60 and yeah. then 60 to 90 and then, you know, and then hopefully all the problems go away. Yeah. So that's kind of the the goal is definitely, and I think it's 100% achievable, that, yeah. that it will end up on supermarket shelves and and the problem will be over because they have the reach that they have. Mm. The thing about... We've now got to a size where we can start introducing the sort of efficiencies that make it cheap enough for supermarkets to be interested. Yeah, that's the problem as well, isn't it? Because people are still, or, you know, for whatever reason, the cost is always an implication for people yeah, buying. So, and for supermarkets yeah. trying to get the prices down, I guess. So. Well, the goat is always, kid goats are always going to be expensive because, yeah. because of the way that the industry is set up. I mean, the... The goat industry, all the goats in the UK, more or less, are, are part of the goat dairy industry, which means the economic driver of that industry is the milk. So when the animals are born, mm. the nanny goats go straight back into the milking parlour because that's their function. That's, yeah. yeah. And the, that's why the kids were a byproduct. Yeah. So in order, like all mammals, they need to drink milk. So in order to keep them alive, you need to give them a milk replacement powder. And that milk replacement powder is expensive. Yeah. It's about 50p a day. I mean, it starts off at... 5p a day and, it, it, and six, bigger, and six yeah. weeks it's yeah. a pound a day so but you level it out it's about 50p a yeah. day so if you have a six to eight week old billy goat mm. in a shed that will be they'll have maybe 50 or 60 pounds worth of milk powder inside it a lamb will stay on the ewe it's because the economic driver yeah, yeah, of the of sheep course. system yeah. is the baby lamb yeah so you're not milking the milk out of the ewe and then having to give the sheep replacement so the two animals at the same age one will have 60 quids worth of cost attached to it and one will have pretty much zero some some labor costs <laughs> and you know but so it's ne it's never going to be a cheap never meat, gonna be a cheap meat. but people can eat it and help and if they so for example if if anyone's listening they're like where can i get a hold like where where do they where do they go to buy it well my uh, the advice i give in the book is first of all your local farmer's market there'll probably be someone selling cheese there goat's cheese yeah. they will probably now keep a few billies alive okay if you ask your local butcher yeah. most butchers can get most things if you ask might take them a week or so that they'll be able to find it because the the change that's happened in the six years that since we started is 
people are now dairies are now keeping more of their animals yeah. alive and managing to find outlets. Yeah. So those are originally, I'd say, farmers markets and then your local butcher. And yeah. if all that fails, we have a shop on the website yeah. that delivers nationwide. <laughs> but I would, but I, but I am, I am true to my, you know, shop local and support yeah. your local butcher. No, roots, no. I mean that's you know? great advice, basically, because once the demand increases, then maybe you know that butcher will start stocking it without actually being asked. Yeah. Um, and I would rather be. 50% of a big market and 100% yeah. of a small one. You know? And you're also, you've got an initiative with um, Farm Africa as well, haven't you, as part of your, of your yeah, book? Well, we've, Tell us about that. We've always, we also support another much smaller charity called Kids for Kids. We buy oh, okay. a goat a month for them. Um, and I've always felt that, that our business, business in general, should have a charitable aspect to it. Mm. Um, and so we decided straight away we would do that um the the partnership with farm africa came about because i was asked to do a sort of demo for them one of the restaurant shows with goat and i got to know the work that they do um in the tigray valley and how they've just revolutionized the community which part of africa ethiopia Ethiopia, Ethiopia. the tigray valley is where michael burke did that really famous uh report that was on the six o'clock news that inspired paul geldoff to do the to do the live aid Know, and to do the, and to yeah. awoke a consciousness among yeah. among our generation. I yeah. mean, I was I don't know five when yeah. that came out. I think something like that. Um, and so they they started about twenty years ago with three goats and one family, and they now have ten thousand mainly female-headed ha- households. Yeah, because I was reading in your book because the men kind of leave the households to go and find work in the city, don't they? And they go and find casual work and they yeah. never come back, leaving women to raise children and basically run the community. Yeah. So, so they now have 10,000 in this, in, this, in, this, in this area. Um, and the only stipulation for joining the programme is that once your herd is established, you need yeah. to find someone else who doesn't have goats and give them three goats, sort of mentor them through the process. So... The change that they've achieved is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, all, all of the the things that you would expect to happen, like um, infant mortality has fallen off a cliff, literacy mm. rates have risen, uh, life expectancy has risen, all those kind of things. But they've introduced goats into this ecology. And what they've managed to do is re-green the valley because the, the income that they get from the, from, the, from the goats has allowed them to microfinance things. So yeah. they've irrigated the valley, which means that they've now got a, uh, a farm. Uh, they've got a flower business, which means they, they also have bees, so they make honey. So. People that have no land and no skills can yeah. now rent out that land for grazing rights to other people with. Wow. So it's created this entire economy. But the other thing that it's done is, it, which is kind of this, the thing that fascinated me about it was this offshoot of this project, yeah. which was essentially to give people an income and feed them. And, yeah. you know, it's increased female representation in government by 600%. <laughs> That's crazy. Which is insane. Because I think you said in the book that traditionally women weren't allowed, well, they they weren't given animals to look after or whatever. I mean, I interviewed the guy that runs the project over a Skype line, James Maluwu, and and there's a case study in some of their literature that women were considered difficult if they opened their mouths. But now they're going to markets and they've got a product that people want to buy. So they've had to learn skills of how to interact with yeah. other people in order for their in order for their to get the most out of their their new business. Wow. But the other thing that Farm Africa's done is it, it has selected from the community people that they see are our sort of natural leaders. Yeah. Brought them into the Farm Africa fold and then 
they've kind of worked their way up through the Farm Africa system because the, the GOAT system is sort of of the people, by the people. So they, and Farm Africa kind of yeah. gently pull themselves yeah, out away. as it becomes sort of run by the yeah, local people. Self-sufficient then, yeah. And these these women have found themselves sort of lead, in leadership roles and then left Farm Africa and thought, what shall I do? And the obvious thing is, I'll go into local government. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, and it is absolutely incredible. So all of the things we think charities do, yeah. it does. But it also has this amazing knock-on effect to improve society. Yeah. And what's the catalyst for that? Goats. And, I, and I, for me, <laughs> that is an amazing achievement. for, an And it also paints a picture yeah. of what humans and goats' relationship has been is. like throughout the year. Yeah. Like, goats have... Goats are adaptable and they're able to live in ecologies that have allowed humans to live in areas they wouldn't otherwise be able yeah. to live in. I mean, stuff like that, you know. It raises the question as to who domesticates who because there are communities living halfway up mountains <laughs> that's only happy for the goat and the poor yeah. guy who owns them has got a slug <laughs> away. But they, but they, because they allowed people to make a living or yeah. to make products that allowed them to exist in areas that other animals weren't allowed, that yeah. gave them... That gave them a. There are goats were the first domesticated farm animal. Yeah. Right, and that has a lot of uh, has a lot of um, implications because what do goats produce? Goats produce milk. But when we first domesticated goats, humans were lactose intolerant, so they weren't drinking liquid milk, which is really counterintuitive. Why would no. you keep a dairy animal but not be able to drink its milk? <laughs> the thing that you do is ferment it, which makes it consumable ah, for okay. humans. So you have yogurt and you have cheese. Right. And what do those things do? Those things keep. So it gives you something to trade, mm. which means you could live halfway up a mountain, you could make yogurt and cheese, and once a week you come down the mountain and you could swap it for all the things you needed to survive and go back up the mountain. So right at the beginning of humans and trade, we're a relationship with humans and goats. Yeah. And so you fast forward that all the way through to the, how they're now in, in the modern day changing people's lives for, in yeah. a really positive way in the Tigray Valley. You write that down and next to it you put a chapter of how in the West we knock them on the head and chuck them in the Yeah, bin. it's ridiculous. And you just think, I don't have to bang that point no, home. No, no. You guys are smart enough to work out how stupid <laughs> that is for yourselves. You know? And that's, that was kind of the, that's, I mean, I think the... Farm Africa do amazing work mm. and there has been a lot of stuff in the newspaper recently about the international aid budget and yeah. how we're wasting money and blah, 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 blah. Farm Africa's major source of funding is the, is the, is the foreign aid budget. So next time you hear Pretty Patel mm. on the radio saying we should slash the age budget, it's not money that's going directly to, to Rolls Royces on African dictators. No. That's a massively outdated view. <clears throat> what it's doing is funding British-based charities that are empowering communities to do really positive changes in their ecology as well as the la I mean that's land management yeah. it's not that's land management <clears throat> it's not just about putting food in bowls for people it's teaching people to it's to manage them their environment keep, keep putting food in bowls for themselves basically yeah, it's also it's not stopping just soil money. erosion yeah and, I mean there are loads and lo there's, there's the society there's the 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 improvements in the lives of the people in the society there's also mm. the improvement in the environment the 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 ecology of that area yeah you know so just i mean i don't put anything about the about the aid budget apart from in the back because i didn't really want to enter <laughs> into a political but it's worth thinking about when people talk about the aid budget I think, that's, yeah that's and i think it you know it it sounds like such a great charity and scheme and people can go and 
investigate that. And your your book, Goat, I think, is it 50% of the profit from it? 50% of my fee and 50% of the, of the royalties go to, yeah. go to Farm Africa. Farm yeah. Africa. So if people buy this book, which incidentally... It's also full of the most incredible recipes. Yeah, it's also recipes. got 70, it's also it's also 70 got, recipes. Yeah, no, I like, it's a cookbook you know, just, for all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is a beautiful cookbook with some of the chefs that we said before, as well as recipes from yourself. Um, and it's called Goat Cooking and Eating by James Wetlow, which is published by Quadrille, is it next week or is this? April the 5th. Yeah. April the 5th, April the next 5th, week. Which yeah. Next Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Um, so people can go out and buy that. If you want to... Um, look further into Cabrito you've got a website is it just called Cabrito cabrito.co.uk yeah. nationwide delivery and yeah. all the good information you could People... ever <laughs> <laughs> or just ring James up because he knows a lot yeah. about goats <laughs> as she says on the cover James knows a lot about yeah. goats well thank you so much for coming to That's chat right. to us today James it was an absolute pleasure great thank you thanks Uh, hi guys, I'm here with Casey Davidson, who's uh, the founder of the London Oyster Week. Hi there. Um, and we're going to just tell you a little bit about oysters. So first of all, I think wh- where we're going to head with it is uh, we look at like the environmental benefits of uh, oysters. Absolutely. Um, they're kind of like one of nature's eco-heroes. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that people don't realise about quite how beneficial they are to the environment they actually grow into reefs when they're left to grow naturally right um and those reefs provide an in, a habitat for about 200 plus other species to thrive right and that's why they're known as a keystone species right right um in addition to that the reefs will provide like a storm surge defense um from coastal erosion which mm-hmm. i think is a very sort of relevant matter at this day and age with yeah, the issues yeah. we have with flooding and and um rising sea levels so yeah. you know that's just just one element um when they grow in natural reefs they've got this um like i said a keystone species status because of the amount of life they actually sustain in the water yeah right they're also they also really good for uh releasing or taking away nitrogen or releasing nitrogen yeah, in carbon dioxide not releasing it's um basically what happens is obviously with modern farming there's a lot of fertilizer put into the soil um that washes down you know the the river systems into the sea mm-hmm. and people think that's great it's fertilizing the um plant life in right. the ocean but obviously it's not a natural balance so you get these algae blooms algal blooms yeah right and there's too much of it and it kind of takes the oxygen out of the water so oysters feed on the algae which is why they're so delicious and Mm -hmm. plump yeah um but they also extract nitrogen and co2 from the atmosphere um by uh, they're they're known as carbon capture tools essentially because they sort of capture it in their shell and it's there sort of held as opposed to in the actual atmosphere right okay yeah Right, cool. Um, what about as like a, a food source? How how long does an oyster take to grow? Is, is it because obviously, I mean, sustainably they're just ne- almost never ending as a, as a food source. Really, you just yeah. grow it. Well, looked after properly, that's absolutely true. They're um, one of the most sustainable foodstuffs on the planet um, because they actually are a positive impact species. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite often people say neutral. But this is, this is quite fascinating because they actually have a positive uh, contribution to their environment. Um, they grow um, commercially uh, to commercial size by about two to three years usually. Right, okay. That can vary depending on where they grow because of the different nutrients in the water mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. different flow yeah. um, of the tides and the river systems. Um, and um, yeah, they, uh, they're one of the most kind of um, sustainable in that respect because farming is basically animal husbandry. There's not a huge amount you have to do apart from right. hold them in the water area. Yeah, so you, 
do you have to like change the environment as at different stages or anything, or is it like it's not just like put them in, put them on on you know in their environment and then leave them there, pull them up in three years, eat them? No, it, you 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 can't just leave them there for the three years because you have to kind of like I said a bit of animal husbandry where you have to check on the growth. Right. Um, you have to separate as they grow. Obviously, the bags that they're in, if they're using the pack and uh, rack and posh system, um, the bags will be. They all have certain gauge holes for the smaller oysters and a larger population per bag. Right. And then as they grow, you separate them out into big, into more bags with bigger gauge holes, right. more water flow. Yeah. And that's how your oyster grows, essentially. Right, okay. So you're just basically keeping an eye on them, moving them around. There is the farming method where they're tumbled, which means that it breaks the, the sort of shell edge off and you get right. a neat little deep cupped oyster, right. uh, which is beneficial for commercial purposes. Right. It, just, it um, looks more regular, more Yeah, pretty, and right? the oyster spends more time putting its growth into the actual meat as opposed to the shell then. I, I, I always right. liken it a little to, you know, a tree that has been treated in a bonsai tradition. Right. It's like snipping the... Um, branches so that the bulk of it grows in the yeah, centre, yeah, yeah, the yeah. shape and the form. It isn't long and wispy and, and right, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. And now I think we should probably do some myth busting, shouldn't we? Because I reckon there's you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about oysters. Um, yes. So I think I'd like to start on this, like the months of the year that you can eat oysters in. Yeah, well, you can eat them all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes very much um, for the Pacific oysters, or also known as rock oysters, yeah. which are the most prolifically farmed oysters around and they're the ones that you'll see most often on your table they're teardrop shaped um often with quite sort of obvious striations of black and white Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. or gray brown um the other reason that that um theory is in is because we have the native oyster austria edulis which is a lot less prolific and um they they're a lot harder to actually farm so most of the populations that we access are wild right so to make sure those um oyster beds like the one in the fowl the fowl native Mm. native um are protected they're only allowed to be fished during the months with an r right um so that they can breed and spawn safely Mm -hmm. um and it sustains the population yeah right okay yeah so that's one of the big reasons for that i think the other is an old myth whereby um people thought that um you know in the old days they were the food stuff of the poor and there was no refrigeration right and so, so same, in- as, same as probably as the pork like myth you know you wouldn't eat uh, pork in the summer months simply usually because it, there was no refrigeration exactly. and, it, yeah. and it spoils quick much quicker exactly yeah. yeah so it was a kind of uh, self-protection thing from you know lack of refrigeration as opposed to anything else yeah okay perfect and yeah i wanted to talk about like sort of the native rock because for me that like i are they so is that the difference in where they're grown or is that an, a specific species difference? Native and rock are two different species. Right. Um, we only have two species growing in the UK. Uh, rock is um, known as Pacific oyster. Right. Its Latin name is Crassostria gigas. And so that's the species, Crassostria gigas, right. rock Pacific. Yeah. Um, and that's the one I mentioned that's farmed uh, prolifically across the UK and Ireland. Um, and what you'll find is the the confusions there because people don't realise that, say, a Whitstable oyster, a Dooncastle oyster, a Porthilly oyster, um, a Menai oyster, as the ones we've uh, been eating today, are all from different areas in the UK and mm-hmm. Ireland. Yeah, right. They're the same species. Yeah, so that's, but, that's again, like, I, I wouldn't have known that. I, yeah. I, obviously, the, the where they're from differentiates them but i didn't actually know they were all the same species it's the same species grown in different areas and that's again where we compare it to um the culture of wine because Mm -hmm. the same grape will produce a completely different wine in a different vineyard completely yeah and it's it's exactly the same with oysters you'll grow the same species and it can even vary in one farm from a part of the estuary you know further out 
towards the salinity yeah, of yeah, the yeah. ocean, yeah. further up the estuary where it's more brackish water yeah. um, and also the tides and the movement yeah, and yeah. the nutrient flow. It's, if you imagine, it's a proper movable feast for those oysters. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and will that depend on what sort of like uh, uh, algae they're eating and like, and yeah, like you say, the salinity of the water will change yes. the character of the oyster. and All of that. Um, I mean, there's a famous oyster, there's the oysters in France that um, turn green from the amount of algae right, they eat yeah, and yeah, people yeah. get a bit scared of that but it's yeah, just... It looks... that, yeah, it, it might scare people but, you know... Cucumbers are green. We eat cucumbers easily. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. all about perceptions. And, you know, like we've discussed, there's a lot of myths around oysters and um, people are worried about eating them not only at different times of the year, but uh, there's the myth of drinking them with spirits, thinking that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's abs- absolutely untrue. Yeah. Um, you can make cocktails with oysters. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I mean, whenever I eat oysters at home, uh, I drain some of the juice out and drink it uh, usually with like a bit of ginger beer and a bit of whiskey. It's nice. Really nice. It's like a kind of sweet, salty, spicy yeah. uh, little drink. Absolutely. Um, the meroir and the terroir. Exactly. And so what would you say is a good uh, like entry-level way of eating oysters? Is there a certain type which are maybe slightly smaller? Because I know, speaking to some people, it's sometimes the size of the oyster, which or is that, well, I suppose you can get different grades, so you can just get yep. it. But is there like one maybe that's more neutral, less minerally or like you know is there well the thing is it's really hard because people's tastes are so very different you know mm. some people love the saltiness so they'll have one from you know that's farmed further out in the ocean like right. a jersey oyster for example yeah yeah um and then others would like the more earthy tones of a native that's um from further up the estuary so in terms of an entry-level oyster i would more go for how it's served as right, opposed to where right, it yeah, comes yeah. from okay yeah um so what you would do is i would always choose one that's quite small Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if someone's doing it for the first time, they don't want to be overwhelmed by a large oyster. Yeah, right. And generally, a small oyster is better for raw on the half shell. And um, also, there's if people are really, if there's quite a lot of trepidation about a raw creature in a shell, then cooking them is no problem. People yeah. um, are finding out more and more how exciting gastronomy is with oysters. Absolutely. Just like I said, with mixology, um, that's, that's a real burgeoning field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so alcohol often helps people have their first oyster too. <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually goes hand in hand. Yeah. So, you know, you can do um, your tempura oyster, so deep fried, mm-hmm. which is always going to help. Yeah, yeah, um, I do a dish called a carmaroli, yeah. which is very similar to carbonara. Um, this is what I call a stealth oyster dish. This stealth. is the best for people who say, I will not eat You will oysters. not eat them, right. Yeah. So what you do is you just cook some pasta, crispy bacon. Um, you make an emulsion of oysters with um, rapeseed oil. So you just right. blend Blitz it. Them. Yeah, right. Yeah. You kind of need to try and do it gently with an emulsifier. Almost like you're making mayonnaise. Yes, like, like oyster I, mayonnaise. I, uh, yeah, where I, where I used to be a chef, we used to make an oyster sort of emulsion exactly. mayo type thing. It's yeah. exactly the same. Yeah, it's right, because exactly the, the fattiness sort of hot, like basically binds the water into yep. emulsion, like, like yep. an egg yolk, basically. So you end up with a beautiful, smooth cream sauce. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to go for it in terms of those people who are like, oh, but it's got a grey colour, or you can uh, do what I do and trim the gills off. Yeah. So it takes the darkness out, a bit like you would with a white sauce when you use white pepper instead of black pepper. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so you've you've made your emulsion, you've got your pasta mm-hmm. and the bacon, crispy bacon, chuck that in and then just stir the emulsion yeah. into yeah, yeah. the into pasta. The bowl, and it's yeah. like a beautiful carbonara, but with Ooh, oysters. The, yeah, so you just get sort of that sort of salinity, that mineralness. Of and the, the nice, umami, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, it just really... You know, it because essentially the you, you hardly have to cook oysters for very long at all. And when you do the dish like this, the hot pasta basically just, yeah, just yeah, yeah, because it's yeah, gently just cooks through gently the sauce. It, yeah, yeah mm. I did a recipe for grilled oysters. So I made like a garlic butter, um, and uh, yeah, just grilled them with yep. some hot sauce and some coriander. Yeah, so oyster good. roasts are fantastic. You can just set them up on the barbecue and have loads of different to- 
toppings like I do a garlic and rosemary one and yeah. it's like a roast dinner and a half shell yeah, yeah, yeah. delicious um, pepper sauces Tabasco all yeah. of it it's wonderful because the, sh- the shell is almost like its own little frying pan isn't it it's exactly like, it's, it's a like ceramic which, uh, which I've pot. always used as another reason to explain their sustainability they come in a ready made um, ethical and sustainable dish yeah perfect <laughs> so why don't we talk a bit about the actual Oyster Week, like what mm-hmm. you're basically trying to achieve yep. and uh, what's on in London. Okay, so it's the inaugural London Oyster Week. It's never been done before. Um, the reason behind the format was to involve as many venues as possible without them having to sort of leave their premises, right. promote oysters in situ, especially mm-hmm. for the people who've been doing it for a very long time, yeah, you know, like anyway. yeah. 100 years or so. Yeah. Um, and um, we just want to really raise awareness of oyster culture in a really sort of formal and holistic without being boring but um a really formal and holistic way so people are meeting the farmers Mm -hmm. um we've got the oyster atlas event at north bank on the 24th of april which um at present five farmers and counting coming along with their oysters to meet the public uh, which is fantastic Mm -hmm. um also a massive part of it is oyster mixology obviously we're being sponsored by brucladi mount gay and uh, remy cognac and we're doing some very carefully matched drinks with the oysters and um, we have this wonderful Isla tradition where Brucladi whiskey comes from where we put whiskey in the oyster shell yes I Um, I tried that this morning it was delicious and uh, quite the breakfast I will say breakfast of Scottish champions yeah my my, my Scottish head Hereditary. Hereditary. Um, definitely, that's not the whiskey talking, by the way. I, am, I, am, I had very little. Um, yeah, I was definitely uh, pleased with that breakfast. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah, as I say, good. you know, it comes, because oysters are so nutritional, you know, so absolutely jam-packed with good nutrition, uh, it's like having your Alka-Seltzer in the drink. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. That was the Old Magazine podcast. If you like this episode or you have any suggestions, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our brand new Easter issue from News Agents Now or go and download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.